From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This is part two of my interview with Hans Ulrich Obrist, curator and artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries in London. In this conversation, which was recorded in two sessions in September and November of 2023, we explore the more personal dimensions of Obrist's work, including his long friendship with the artist Atel Adnan, the insecurities he harbors around his unrealized projects, and whether growing older has changed his relationship to contemporary culture, which is where this part of the interview begins. I hope you enjoy it. It'll be more kind of rapid fire than last time. And then you can edit. Then I can edit. Um, so I'm curious how growing older has changed the way you see the world and the way you look at art in particular. As a curator, you seek out work that responds to the current moment, but do you ever feel like contemporaneity is escaping you? I mean, my sort of curiosity is still the same as at the beginning, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of infinite. And so if you look, for example, at that whole video game research, you know, I'm doing now, I see that younger artists work with video games mm-hmm. and I, I think I'm a lifelong student. I didn't want to learn. So then I started to, you know, learn a lot about, I didn't grow up with video games. So I looked at the whole history of video games and have all the equipment here and at home to play video games. And I started to play a lot of video games. I started to, you know, so I think... It's always about learning, so I, I think nothing in that sense, you know, changed. But I think it's also, of course, your question is also a more philosophical question, right? And so, in a sort of practical way, I think, you know, no, I would say that that it's exactly the same when I started. It's I, I'm immersed into the extreme present. I, I'm aware, and I think I believe that we can only invent the future if we also look into the past. But I am deeply working with the extreme present, and. Be, being aware that the future does fly in under the radar. I would never want to predict the future, but it's it's working. I mean, we did a book with Shimon Bazar and Douglas Copeland on the extreme present. I do, however, in terms of the philosophical aspect of your question, think that George Agamben nailed it when he says, you know, those who are truly contemporary are those who neither perfectly coincide with their time nor adapt to its demands. Mm. Um, contemporaryness then is that relationship with time that adheres to it through a disconnection. And I do believe that that's true. You know, I think, I never really think to coincide perfectly with our time. And I also don't believe that we should completely adapt, which goes back to the previous question, right? About art changing mm-hmm. what what we expect um, from it. And then your question about architecture? Yeah, basically, how do you see the relationship between art and architecture today? How is it? How is one impacting the other, and what particularly can architects learn from art today? Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, Vasari didn't separate it, right? I mean, it's the lives of the artists and the lives of the architects. And I think we need to get on us. I mean, the, the poet Etelatnan, who was a big inspiration for me, uh, once told me that the world needs togetherness, not separation. The world needs love not suspicion, the world needs a common future and not isolation. And that's the kind of motto I have that, you know, post-it note, you know, uh, with me at all times. And uh, um, and I would say that, you know, um, so it's definitely not about separation. I think we see that also with the new generation, you know, whose practices are so fluid. They are kind of between the different disciplines 
um, they work within art, architecture, music, literature, very often, you know, in a seamless kind of way. And so I think that today, this idea that we have an institution for art, an institution for architecture, an institution for music, an institution for literature, yes, we do need these specialized vehicles, of course, as we also do need the protected spaces, you know, they, they give us for research, etc., etc. But we need, so I'm not saying that we don't need that, we do need them, but we need in addition to that also institutions which can go beyond the fear of pooling knowledge, which break down these silos, no? And I think if, I mean, every art form and every generation requires its kind of own institution. And, you know, if, if I look right now during my studio, doing my studio visit at what is kind of needed, it clearly needs a, a completely interdisciplinary institution where we can have art, architecture, poetry, literature, all of that, you know, together. And of course, we can ask ourselves, you know, do we do this as a new institution? Do we need to be you know, something John Littlewood and Cedric Price asked themselves when they invented the Fun Palace, which in the early 60s was um, a truly interdisciplinary art center in the east of London, where they had people from all disciplines advising and it would have been basically yeah, an environment of total fluidity of practice and all disciplines could have coexisted and one day there could be an opera, another day an exhibition, a concert. There would be slow lanes and fast lanes, silent spaces and noisy spaces. And that of course remained an unrealized project. So we can ask ourselves, you know, do we need a sort of a version 3.0 of that, you know, a new interdisciplinary institution? Or can we actually transform the existing institutions? You know, and I think it's something you're trying to do at the Serpentine, the latter, you know, to transform an institution which is small and has actually this flexibility. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we, we have art exhibitions and contemporary art is at the center of what we do, but we also with the pavilion have every year a very, you know, open space where filmmakers can use it and poets can use it and architects and artists. And, you know, it's almost like a new institution every summer, the pavilion, you know, where we commission architecture in front of the Serpentine. We also started to install new departments in the Serpentine, you know, we basically have a technology department which allows us to now produce this video game exhibition, so a technology department, a department of ecology, where we put ecology at the center of everything we do, not just for one exhibition, but on a daily basis, and then a civic department where we basically think about how art goes into society. So I do believe that, you know, that, that in a way um, uh, we need to think about um, about this idea of, of um, yeah of going beyond the fear of putting knowledge of breaking down silos, and, um, and and in a way that's also why we felt it's important with the pavilion um, to actually go to a younger generation of architects. You know, over, I mean the, the pavilion has fulfilled I think a very important function. It was started by Zaha Hadid in 2000, and you know with uh, when Julia Payton John started the scheme. I joined in 2006, and we continued to do what the, the scheme had actually started for which is to basically introduce voices in architecture I've never built in the UK and even if London is such a global city for many things for architecture it was always rather hermetic in the sense of that so many architects from from abroad had never built here I mean mm -hmm. if you think the fact that here Niemeyer, Zahadid um, they all built here for the first time yeah, um, Gary you know they've built in France they've built in Spain they've built in Germany in all other European countries they've built but not here mm -hmm. And, um, but then I think around maybe six, seven years ago, it was at the moment of Seiji Must Be an Ale, when um, I did these now interviews, you know, we started to realize that the new generation had come forward and 
invited Su Fujimoto and Smiljan Radic. And ever since, we went more and more into a younger generation because we felt also this platform had been established mm -hmm. of high visibility mm -hmm. and that it could actually now be an extraordinary tool also for making a young generation of architects, or more architects more visible, of giving them a platform and also of uh, giving these architects the possibility, you know, to then build, you know, more internationally and to make the field of architecture more diverse, which is so urgent and important. And that's, of course, you know, what we did with Frida Escobedo, a very young architect in Mexico who had built very little outside Mexico, did the Serpentine Pavilion, now won the competition for the Met. Uh, Francis Quiré from Burkina Faso and Berlin, you know, based in Germany and Burkina Faso, who soon after the Serpentine, you know, won the Pritzker Prize. Sumaya Valley, who is the youngest architect in the series, who, uh, you know, who uh, now is doing projects all over the world, she's building a bridge in Belgium. You know, she had not built really before, but it's this is extraordinary, you know, architect. So to give these architects the possibility, or you know, last year of course with the Aster Gates, every now and then we have a visual artist involved. You know, uh, that's also important. But it's mainly an architecture scheme, and but it was exciting to work with the Aster because he actually has an architectural background. He comes from urban planning. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, because he's been mostly in the art world. This was the first time he really built architecture, so we can say he's also a young architect, you know, even if he's a very experienced visual artist. And then this year, of course, with Lina Gottme, a table, the idea of a table, you know, again, a young architect, Lebanon, you know, based in Paris. So I think to work with these architects on a scheme every year and also reflect with them, not only on the form of the pavilion, but also on the content, you know, because we always discuss also with the architects the content, because of course, the pavilion, you know, has also to do with a, with a program or, uh, you know, in a way, as Remkolas once said, it's a kind of a content, potentially a content machine, mm -hmm. you know, as he said in, you know, in, 2000, uh, in 2006. And, uh, and of course it connects to the city, you know, it's also how the pavilion can actually become part of this urban tissue and go outside the gallery space. Um, Sumaya did a whole archipelago of different islands. And to always reflect the city, I mean, we're interested also that exhibitions go outside the gallery and that's of course something I mean, I came here to London for the first time in the 90s as a guest curator at the Serpentine. I was introduced to the Serpentine by Richard Venturas. And of course, I mean, um, he's as a, you know, as a visual artist, also a great urban flaneur. Mm -hmm. And uh, this idea that we actually always connect exhibition makings to the city is something I always learn from Richard. You often quote from the artist, the Lebanese uh, painter and poet, Etel Adnan who in fact you've met with hundreds of times, you've interviewed her countless times, and she is a kind of mentor, or has been a mentor to you. She passed away recently. You've also said that she gives you courage. Yeah, basically the, the encounter with Etel Anand really goes back to, um, goes kind of back to a very early meeting I had with Rosemary Trockel, the German artist, and I was like a teenager. And um, I went to a studio in, in Cologne and, you know, I was like 17 and she was 33 and uh, started to already have international shows. And, you know, I, I basically said, uh, Rosemar basically said, you know, how wonderful it is that I would visit younger artists and come and see our practice and lots of her friends. But that she feels it's kind of important that one would also look back and that it would also visit, you know, maybe pioneering artists who haven't had the visibility they, they should have. And, you know, it was a time in the 80s when Rosemary was, of course, involved with Monica Sprut, with his magazine, um, Eau de Cologne, involving also, you know, Barbara Kruger and several other artists of her generation. And, um, 
you know, she said it was the moment basically when Louis Bourgeois started to have first surveys in early 80s in the US and the mid 80s in, in Europe, very late in her life. And Rosemary said it's wonderful that finally Louis Bourgeois gets the recognition she deserves, but there are so many other extraordinary women artists whose, you know, pioneering women artists whose work should be more known. And we, you know, she would very much recommend. She almost gave me the task. I mean, it's kind of interesting because I was so young when I started to meet these artists, I was like 17, you know, and still going to school, that the artists somehow often had, you know, yeah, the feeling that they could give, should maybe give me a task, which I then would do, you know. Mm. So Boetti gave me the task to talk to artists about their unrealized projects and then have, hopefully make them happen, you know, um, and uh, and so on. And, and in a way, um, also my talker gave me the artist to kind of, gave me the task to kind of, when I go to cities, when I am in a new city, to kind of find out if there are any, you know, pioneering artists like Louis Bourgeois in that, in that city. And the first time I applied what I call the, the Trockel methodology was in Vienna. I arrived there. Uh, a few few days after meeting Rosemary, I took a night train and went to Vienna and I asked the younger artist there, you know, is there an artist a bit like Louis Bourgeois in Vienna? Is there a pioneering artist whom I should visit? And everybody said Maria Lasnik, you know, who at that time who did this amazing body awareness painting and uh, never, you know, at that time wasn't really known beyond Germany and Switzerland and Austria. It was just, you know, um, known there and is today one of the most important painters, I think, of the later part of the 20th century. And, and so, you know, thanks to Rosemary's methodology, I came to her and I've done this methodology. I've continued to, to kind of follow these tasks the artist gave me as a teenager ever since. You know, I, I still ask artists every day about their unrealized projects and try to make them happen. I still, you know, follow the Trockel methodology. And that's kind of how I came to Adele. And it was probably around 15 years ago. And I um, I went actually to the to the Dubai Art Fair. And I was there with, you know, also some younger artists. And they all said, you know, you should look at the work of, of Adele Adnan. You should look at the work in poetry. You should work in literature and, you know, her journalism, her, also her, uh, um, you know, her, her drawings, her paintings. Uh, her public art. She also wants to be an architect. And out of that, you know, I mean, very often when I meet artists, then a sort of a longer dialogue kind of evolves, sometimes over many years. Um, that happened, you know, with Maria Lasnik. We then had a letter exchange over more than 10 years, which was recently published. And with Adele, you know, a similarly intense dialogue started, and somehow out of the dialogue came the idea for my handwriting Instagram that kind mm -hmm. of was prompted by by her, but also, you know, many shows we did um, together, which, which kind of focused on all these many different dimensions, the way, how in this incredible way she sort of navigated through these different fields and disciplines. And um, and, and and yes, I mean, the idea also that, that you know, whenever we, we worked with Adele, yet a new dimension of her practice was, you know, was revealed. And I think that's what happens often when I work with artists, that, you know, it's, it's not like done with one collaboration. And, uh, um, and, and this idea of a recurrent kind of conversation is also a little bit what is at the core of what we do at Luma, you know, with my archive, because the archive of my interviews is basically leads to exhibitions every year at Luma, where Maya Hoffman invited me to kind of present the archive in Al. And uh, with the curator there, Artur Fure, you know, who is the curator of, the, of, of, of my archive project, we every year basically focus on one artist with whom I've really had a long collaboration. And, uh, so we did the first year, Edouard Glissant, so more philosopher, poet, writer, um, who was a big inspiration about whom we spoke last time, I think, quite extensively. Um, so we showed, you know, we show all the videos, which, because um, I often film, you know, my, my conversations with, with artists and poets. 
Um, and we show also the letter exchange. We show all the projects we did together. You know, it becomes a kind of an archive room. Um, and we did the same also with Etel, you know, all the kind of a, um, a summary of all the collaborations, of all the post-its were exhibited. And this year it's still on until actually next summer. So there is still time to see it mm-hmm. in Arlet Luma. It's the show of Agnes Varda, you know, who is another artist with whom I worked really very intensely over more than 15 years. And again, somehow I encountered through Rosemary Tucker's methodology because I came to Paris. I had a grant from the Carty Foundation in the early 90s and allowed me for the first time, because I had no money to leave Switzerland, so allowed me for the first time to go to go outside Switzerland for three months for longer, not just on night trains. Mm-hmm. And so I spent, spent sort of three months in Paris and went to studios every day. And an early studio visit was there with Dominique Gonzalez Förster, the, um, uh, the f- French artist who, who, who basically was more or less one of the only artists who was my age because I was very young then I was like 23 so most artists I visited were you know in their 30s or 40s were a bit older um, and so Dominique was one of the first artists I kind of met of my of my generation um, and during that first studio visit she said you know you you absolutely have to interview and meet Anies Varda the way she works between documentary and fiction the way you know she's very much pioneering influence on the whole Nouvelle Vague the way she also um, has basically connected to the visual arts because she was a photographer at the beginning, you know, worked with Caldo, worked with Germain Richier. So Dominique felt, you know, it was sort of time to kind of visit. And then it took many years until I met Agnes Wala, but then we met um, around 99 and, and 2000 maybe for our first conversation when we started to make research for the 2003 project for Utopia Station, you know, and the first interview happened, I think, in the preparation for Utopia Station. And it was very interesting when I went to see Agnes Wala, she said, she really hoped always that an art curator would visit her because she was always invited to film festivals and obviously won a lot of awards at film festivals, but never, you know, was in an art by Jan Elen. So when we invited her to Utopia Station, she said it felt like a liberation, you know, because she could basically, um, she could basically all of a sudden express herself in a way the film world never allowed her. Because in the film, she could only do a feature film or she could do a, a short film. Whilst here she could do on a multi-screen environment, you know, she could do multi-sensory things, she could work with smell, she could work with the tactile aspect of the potatoes, she did patatutopia, mm-hmm. like connected to the glaneur, to the glinos, you know, to work on sort of on food, on the, on the food chain. And, um, and she came to Venice to the opening disguised as a potato in a costume. And, <laughs> and the whole thing was like really a fun, wonderful adventure for her also and for us. And she then, you know, and then of course that has a lot to do also with, it's not only about kind of working with artists, but also sometimes bringing artists from outside the visual art world into the visual art world. And I think exhibitions are a great possibility to kind of do that. And so, yeah, so the Agnes Vada show is still on and then, you know, next year we're going to work on another one. As you're speaking, as you're responding to this question about Etel Adnet, I have in my mind the image of a fisherman casting out a net. There is a similar style of thought maybe to Richard Wentworth, I'm getting a bit of deja vu, having spoken with him, he describes his style of thought as spiraling. Yeah. And to me, it spirals outward. And I feel like there's still something to, to kind of center on with Etel and your attraction to her work. And um, I think what I'm asking is quite an intimate question yeah. about how Adnan's work speaks to you. I mean, if she was a mentor to you, how exactly? And how, how did her work give you courage personally? Yeah, I mean, I would very often, you know, 
ask her for advice. We would, you know, have conversations about um, about about life and work, and and so it's, it's in that kind of way, you know, very, um, yeah. And um, and I would say, yeah, it's 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 in a way, yeah, that, that that's what it was, yeah. I'm going to jump around a bit. I think one of the most important questions that we should probably address now is um, this a topic of the Unrealized Project. Yeah. Uh, which in the past you've mentioned was for you. I mean, this is a question, first of all, you asked the artist at the end of your conversations. You've obviously been asked this question numerous times, um, including last time we spoke by me. Uh, and we talked about the Black Mountain College and your ambition to revive that institution. But I've also read somewhere more recently that one of your unrealized projects is to write a novel. Yeah. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so, so, so basically in terms of writing, you know, most of my writing has always been about, um, about artists, it's been about curation, you know. It's been about specific exhibitions. It's been, you know, I've just written this morning a short text on, you know, Barbara Kruger. We're working on a show with her here. So, you know, that's kind of my daily practice in terms of writing. You know, it, it's in addition to the conversations I do write about, you know, and, and also about, you know, in a way about museums and the future of museums and, and, and all of that. But I've never really written, you know, things outside that sort of field and that sort of changed during the lockdown because I've always had sort of two unrealized writing projects you know one is that dream of kind of well, idea of maybe one day writing a novel and uh, the other thing is um, is to kind of write a, a sort of autobiography but an autobiography which wouldn't be about you know I did this and I did that but which would be more about really focused on the kind of DIY spirit, you know, my work is all about because it's all a DIY story, and and you know, and hopefully could then be useful also for younger people, you know, as a kind of a DIY kind of not guideline, but as a DIY possibility, you know, mm-hmm. as a kind of an open gate, you know, the book would be a kind of a or could be a kind of an open gate to possibility somehow, and also more personal because I've never written a kind of a personal book that you know. Ways of curating is a type of autobiography, but a work autobiography. You know, it's not it's not personal, and so it would be a more sort of personal kind of autobiography. And so then, during the lockdown, you know, I have this friend in Paris, um, uh, Bernard Comon. He's a novelist, and in France there is this tradition which doesn't exist everywhere, but it's a very specific French tradition. It's a very interesting one, where basically you know leading novelists are directing. Um, a series of books in literature publishing houses, you know, so like um, that's existed for a long, long time. And Bernard Comon is basically directing, he and Alain Mabancou, another great novelist, are kind of directing series in Le Seuil, a French literary publishing house. And he sort of was for many, many years driven by this idea that I should write a personal autobiography and, you know, talk about more personal matters and, and more, and, and also in a way, um, tell the story kind of of my, my, my life in in this spirit of actually DIY. And so um, I never had time to do it and he always called me every three months. But then when the lockdown occurred, he did what, you know, uh, uh, no editor had ever done, is that he literally started to call me every day. Wow. So every morning, like at 8 a.m., you know, I had Bernard Comon on the line and he said, have you written? I want you to write this book. It's going to be important for, you know, for you and for the world and we want you to write this book. 
And so for the first sort of two or three weeks, I resisted it and I thought, like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to do this and how could I, you know. So for the first, let me start that sentence again. So for the first couple of weeks, um, I somehow tried to resist it, you know. I was also thinking, um, um, maybe I'm too busy, maybe it's, and I was also kind of scared of doing it. I was, I was too shy to do it and sort of too intimidated by the whole scope of it. And then, uh, so it was kind of a mix of all of that. And, um, and so I somehow tried to push it away. But then as he kept calling throughout the lockdown, after about two or three weeks, I started to think, I mean, this is, cannot continue. I need, it's so embarrassing. I need at some point to at least tell him I started. So then I began to write and he literally called me throughout the lockdown until for, for many, many months, you know, with the, the multiple lockdowns, every single day at eight, nine o'clock, have you written? And so uh, uh, the book basically was almost finished when the lockdowns ended. So we, I started to write and it's a book which is very much about, you know, um, me beginning, you know, without really having access and just creating the access myself by ringing up, you know, people of me beginning basically also without money and sort of trying, finding ways of by night trains without money, really with almost, with almost no money to travel around Europe and encounter the people I needed to encounter, finding my own school in a way, it became my own, you know, school of learning and listen, listening, you know, the importance of learning to listen. Um, and then, you know, the kind of also but also the earlier even the encounters how I came to art you know and I had an accident when I was like six or seven a, a sort of a car accident where I almost died it was kind of for many months between life and death and I think that was definitely a, a quite sort of you know a decisive moment which is also when I started to read quite you know a, a lot and um, and then you know I would say um, that story I've never told, and I think that was the beginning in a way with art. Something happened there, which then somehow brought me to art. And this has also a lot to do with this idea, you know, of, of healing, you know, that art can maybe heal. And, uh, and, 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 um, um, and that has to do also with how actually art came for the first time to our household. Because mm-hmm. um, my mother bought this medicine from this, I told you last time, from Emma Coons. And, um, um, and so I told the story of, of Ion, you know, and how we met the first artist and that whole thing we covered last time. But the interesting thing about this whole process of this book was actually, you know, in a way that it then at a certain moment, you know, also um, reached the moment of the lockdown. And I kind of reflected also, you know, the COVID moment. I started to reflect about what that, you know, what that meant. And so something changed there. And it was also the moment when my mother passed away. Yeah. And, 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 you know, my mother, I kind of, I read in Serge Danet that he, when he started to travel, the film critic, you know, and parents were always worried, like mine were always worried because I was all over Europe by night train as a teenager. They kind of wondered where I was. There were no mobile phones. It was kind of a panic. And so I decided to always send a postcard or a book to my mother every day, you know, for wherever I was. Because, and that's, I learned that from Serge Danet and that's hugely reassuring. And and then I, I continued to do that until my mother passed away. Every week, two or three times, I sent her all my texts, all my books, books I, I kind of found about art, but also all my publications. And she read everything, not only my text, she would read the whole thing. Wow. So after about, you know, 20, 30 years of doing that, she started to know a lot. And then mysteriously, when she was 80, you know, became an artist. And wow. uh, yeah, and, and then she started to kind of do these amazing sculptures, which are kind of on the verge of invisibility in the apartment. So she would basically, um, you know, um, hide them in the fridge and in the cupboard. Yes? Um, you've got your call now. Yeah, in, in five minutes. Yeah, thank you. 
so you know she basically um, would um, she would basically put um, uh, the artworks you know some under the carpet some in a cupboard behind the glasses so when you entered the apartment you actually didn't see the art but then little by little when I spent a few days at my mother's place I started to discover in the cupboard where she had her clothes you know under, under a carpet you know, behind the sofa you know on the television suddenly there was this strange object on television I started to realize that she had created a very beautiful exhibition and we preserved all these works when she passed away and I mm. we can one day do a book so that's also kind of in the book for the novel um, it's it's kind of an I I'm, I still haven't, you know, the book hasn't come out in English. It's come out in French and it's now coming out in German. Because for the English version, I really want to write a, a sort of a, a, a last chapter. Because the book kind of ends a little bit in haste. Because then all of a sudden, you know, um, basically there was again not a lot of time. Because obviously the lockdowns ended and, you know, and I then had to finish the book because the book went to print. But I want to sort of liberate time next year and write a sort of a last chapter, which is more kind of an outlook to the future. The novel is kind of completely impossible for me to talk about because the, the, the novel is kind of my somehow self-censored project. You know, it's, it's the story of Doris Lessing when mm-hmm. we talked about unrealized projects last time. And, you know, I, I think there's a range of unrealized projects, too big, too small, too time intense, too expensive, you know, censored and all of that. But Doris Lessing said, that actually a very important part of the unrealized projects are the are basically the the projects we don't dare to do. And I've always been convinced that I would sort of be it would be very embarrassing this novel. So I've never really dared to write it. And so obviously I also don't really dare to talk about my ideas because I think they'd be embarrassing. But I now that Bernard pushed me, you know, I was thinking that maybe I just have to have him call me again every day at eight o'clock. <laughs> and then maybe in our next interview I can tell you about the novel. I think I'm sort of soon getting ready. <laughs> So do you have to go now? Is that... We can do one more question. Okay, one more question. Just acknowledging your voracious, omnivorous, insatiable appetite for culture, for art. Um, what sources are feeding you right now? Where do you look to get new information? I mean, it sort of hasn't really changed. It's it's just new layers have been somehow added, I would say. I mean, the the... It's still when I go to cities, um, I've just been to Rome, Milan, mm. I I see exhibitions, I always go to studios, mm. I ask artists if there is, you know, new artist studios I should see, I, you know, I apply the Trockel methodology and look at artists from previous generations, mm. I go to sometimes to art schools to see, you know, graduate shows, I go a lot to galleries, and then of course there is, you know, the layer of YouTube and Instagram as a sort of an additional layer which has been, you know, added and, and, and all of that. So so I would say it's just a sort of layers and layers. I, I think it's still the moment really of being in a city and kind of going deeper is, you know, it's 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 sort of otherwise feels always like it just scratches the surface. So I have to be in a city for a couple of days mm-hmm. and then it's sort of a chain reaction unfolds, you see, because I would start to meet people and they would tell me about artists and studios I should see and then I make these studio visits and the artists tell me about other artists and then mm-hmm. the artists tell me about museum directors I haven't met yet or about curators and then they tell me about poetry they read then I go to see the poet mm-hmm. the tells me about another poet so it's kind of very much what Philippe Areno says La Chaine est Belle you know it's 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 a, it's, a, it's almost like often a chain reaction and mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's not something which kind of it never really worked for me 
to do this only online. I mean, online is an additional layer. It's been very helpful. I mean, as is ChatGPT, I use it every day. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for, for research and writing, you know, I, I use it. But so it's not at all that I'm not embracing these new technologies, but I just think I'm, you know, I do think that art is still a profoundly analog experience. And even if there is all these excitements with new experiments in art and technology, I have to go to a specific city. And of course, you know, um, I try to, you know, to, to reduce um, strongly my flying. And so I continue to do what I do by train in Europe. And I think it's also really amazing that we have this polyphony of art centers in Europe and, and can just travel by train. And and, and so in a way, I, I kind of, you know, it's not so different from what, what I did in the 90s in terms of the research. I just go to cities and, and see and then go to the next city and tell and then always come back, of course, to where I work. Um, yeah. Can I just ask one more question? Because it's to me, somehow fundamental to what I understand might be your methodology. And it has to do with this resistance uh, to convention or resistance to routine, which I think is different than ritual. But you traveled uh, early on in your, mm-hmm. in your curatorial career by train at night. Um, and um, you also followed different bizarre sleeping schedules, whether it was Da Vinci's method or Honoré de Balzac's uh, large intake of coffee. And you were saying in, in uh, Ways of Curating, the book published by Penguin in 2014, that these were all attempts to try and find alternative ways of organizing daily life, yeah. alternative daily rituals, and that you were doing this in a way to erase the structural separation between work and recreation that organizes conventional living. I'm just wondering, how do you do that now? Do you still sleep? very little do you still have this brutally early club what are your kind of methods of pulling yourself out of routine yeah i mean i sleep more now uh, but uh because you know if i don't sleep i don't dream Mm -hmm. and dreaming is really important i mean that's elan six who taught me that because she gave me a book some years ago she wrote about her dreams she always has a little book next to her bed and then she writes down her dreams and she gave me this book to read once it was published um, and I kind of felt like, oh, you know, I should, she gave me the advice again, you know, advice from an artist and writer. She said I should sleep more to dream more. And so I started to do that. Um, no, I mean, I still think you're right that I think it's interesting to kind of edit time differently. And, and, and of course, you know, I work with a night producer, so I never leave dinners or evening engagements or commitments I have after 10, 30, 11, because at 11, is the appointment with the night producer, you know, either virtually or in person when I'm in London. And then when we go through all the, the things, you know, which uh, it could be ha- could happen during the night. And the night producer works kind of from 11, 11.30 to 6, 7 a.m. So that's definitely, I think, a rather unusual thing, you know, and that has proved to be very, very productive. Um, I also think that, um, uh, yeah, and would say that, that that the idea of liberating time is really important, you know, that we're not sort of, because I mean, the thing about the homogenized time schedule is that we have all these meetings and then the day is over and then the next day starts. And I very often need to find a way to liberate time, either to read or, you know, liberate time to, I mean, studio visits are, it's very interesting in terms of studio visits that there is a kind of a, a different time in the studio of of artists, you know, Sabine Moritz said here for, the, for my Instagram, in the studio there is no time, all history is the present and the present is history, you know, and that's a strange thing 
that almost time gets suspended when I do a studio visit. I kind of forget time and it can sometimes be two or three hours. You know, there's also totally slowing down. That's definitely also, I mean, the studio visits are a major aspect of sort of breaking with the routine because it's each time, you know, artists are world builders. Mm. And so you kind of travel into another world, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so I would say that's maybe the most important um, thing. Uh, studio visits. And I think I have to go. Okay. Thank this you is so for much. you. This is my new book. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks again, Hendra. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. And you can combine it to be fine. Yeah. Okay. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Hans Ulrich Obrist. Special thanks this week to Richard Wentworth, Schumann Bissar, Rhiannon Stanford, and Max Shackleton. Thanks as always to Skandolin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.